The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Brother Jansen, uh, are you available to read Scripture for us tonight? All right. Second Kings, please. Second Kings chapter 20. Second Kings chapter 20. <clears throat> Pick up there this evening. In those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, went to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Then he turned his face toward the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Remember now, O Lord, I pray, how I have walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart, and have done what was good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And it happened before Isaiah had gone out into the middle court that the word of the Lord came to him saying, return and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people. Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father. I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Surely I will heal you. On the third day, you shall go up to the house of the Lord and I will add to your days 15 years. I will deliver you in this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Then Isaiah said, Take a lump of figs. So they took it and laid it on the boil, and he recovered. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, What is the sign that the Lord will heal me, and and that I shall go up, up to the house of the Lord the third day? Then Isaiah said, This is a sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do the thing which he has spoken. Shall the shadow go forward ten degrees or go backward ten degrees? And Hezekiah answered, It is an easy thing for the shadow to go down ten degrees. No, but they let the shadow go backward ten degrees. So Isaiah the prophet cried out to the Lord, and he brought the shadow ten degrees backward by which it had gone down, on the sundial of Ahaz. At that time, Beradoc Baladon, the son of Baladon, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah. For he heard that Hezekiah had been sick, and Hezekiah was attentive to them, and showed them all the house of his treasures, the silver and gold, the spices, and precious anointment, and all his armory, all that was found among his treasures. There was nothing in his house where in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah Isaiah the prophet went to the king Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say, and from where did they come to to you? So Hezekiah said, They came from a far country from Babylon. And he said, What have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among them, among my treasures, that I have not shown them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he said, Will there not be peace and truth at least in my days? Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah, all his might, and how he made a pool and a tunnel and brought water into the city, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Hezekiah rested with his fathers, then Manasseh his son reigned in his place. I hadn't thought much about this passage beforehand, obviously, but just even that first portion reminds me of the times in which we cry out to the Lord on behalf of others to lengthen their days. And I think even most recently, I think of uh, Christy, your grandparents and God's mercy there. And we don't know the days numbered, but he has shown his mercy and he does do that when we cry out to him. And for that, we can be very thankful. So thus is God's word. Very excellent. We have... Uh uh, hopefully, a couple guys uh, afterward to uh, do some work here. We just want to move this uh, 
tank and uh, the wood underneath it and stuff so it can dry out under there properly so we don't get appreciate that. Yeah, we don't want to get uh, any growths in the carpet, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, uh, we had to first empty about 1,600 pounds of water out of there. That took all afternoon, so it's actually still trickling out just now, but uh, it takes a lot longer to drain than it does to load or fill. All right, well, I told you we'd do some Bible Q&A. Uh, tonight, so if you have a question, we would love to uh, take that question uh, this evening. I will mention that we had a question last time uh, about the impeccability of Christ, and I thought I would just mention that again. Uh, I have a more concise, uh, kind of better answer for it uh, this this evening. The question was regarding uh, when Christ said that he could uh, call twelve legions of angels to come to his aid and and uh, re- uh, rescue him from the the uh, arrest and the cross and all of that and so the question was if if uh, he could do that then doesn't that mean he could sin and uh, the answer hinges on the proper understanding of the word could okay the, the word could could mean does he have the ability and I, my answer is yes he does have the ability he indicated that he had the ability to do that. But there's another sense of the word could, and that is connected with the word would. Would he do that? Or could he do that? Did he have the desire to do so in his heart, in his mind? And the answer to that is no. He did not have that could. So he could not because he did not have the desire to do so. You see the distinction? He had the ability. Now, he also, uh, kind of to go back to an earlier part of that question that we talked about, and last time in our Q&A session, and that was, could, uh, or what, what was exactly the sin that Jesus was uh, tempted to do with Satan? Well, there were three of them in the temptations, but the making of bread was one of them. And uh, we would have to say, I think we would agree, that Jesus could have turned stones or anything into bread, right? Yeah, he could have turned nothing into bread. That's a real miracle. Ex nihilo. So he could do that. He had the power to do that. But impeccability doesn't ask if he has the power or ability to do something. It has the idea of whether he has the desire or could be tested, tempted to have the desire to do that if he actually, in fact, in that way could do it. So to, to, to charge Jesus with peccability, that is the ability to sin based on his ability to do certain miraculous things uh, is not a proper charge against his impeccability. Does that make sense? Not yet. Having the power to do something is not a sinful thing, nor is it, does it open him to the charge of being able to sin. Because he always uses his powers in a holy manner. Never in an unholy manner. Okay? And never does he have the desire, like we might have, to use them in an unholy manner. So, I think that's a helpful distinction if we say, okay, we keep his, his abilities in one little box here in our thinking and we keep his desire or will or you know, his internal nature in another box. So, he could do something, but he said, I, I can't do that. You get that? You know? Yeah, I could turn those stones into bread, but I, I can't do that. I could call 12 legions of angels, but I can't do that because the will of the Father is that I go to the cross and the Scripture has to be fulfilled and, and all those things. So that was the issue with the matter of uh, impeccability, that question that we had last time. It's always good to have questions in advance because you can think of more concise and better answers uh, than than if you have them right on the spot. That's the danger of a scenario like this. So um, I wanted to just also alert you to a topic that has been on my desk for a little while that I wrote about on my blog. Uh, And actually, I um, was helped by Ben Carnes on this. So thank you to Deacon Carnes. Just uh, alerting me to the some details on this idea of mindfulness, mindfulness. Mindfulness is something used in the schools today. And 
Uh, it is basically a thinly veneered version of Eastern mystical meditation. Uh, so it's become a thing for schools to promote mindfulness. And uh, upon hearing what students do during their mindfulness times in class, it immediately sounded suspect to me. Uh, my, my uh, what's that Tom McParlin call that? Uh, my little antennas go off. Oh, yeah, my spidey sense went uh, off and I knew, I knew there was something around that uh, wasn't quite right. Um, so it, uh, I was disturbed by that thinly veiled attempt to get a religious position into the secular classroom while the school systems reject Christianity and make every attempt to get God out of the schools. I still, my offer still stands. If any public school wants to have a pastor come and introduce Christianity for one hour to the class, I will do it. Anywhere in this area, okay? So you get you get them to uh, call me up and say, "Would you teach our our class on that?" And and, and maybe they're going to have a class on Islam and Buddhism and other ones as well. Fine, okay. That's part of education. Yeah, well, they're right. They get that already. Yeah, they get the the Greek gods and Roman gods and all of that stuff. But uh, what about the Christian faith? Why is it it's the only one that can't be in the schools anyway? So, mindfulness is a new word for meditation. It was invented to help get meditation accepted in more places. This is from Ben, and I'm thankful for his analysis of this. It's a less religious-sounding word. And even though it's claimed to be non-religious, it smells a lot of Buddhism. And it's funny because, you know, who tend to be the topic experts on mindfulness? Buddhists. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, is there a way we could... How can we call Christianity by something else? And I happen to be the topic expert on it. Just to, just to give it a, a less religious sounding name. You know, I mean, if we're going to play tricky, tricky games here, let's, uh, let's uh, join the fun, I suppose. Um, the problem is we're too, uh, how can we say, we're too honest. We're supposed to be that way, right? Forthright, transparent, you know, what you see is what you get. You know, but people don't like that, of course. So the, the main idea of mindfulness is to become aware of your own thoughts. Um, it seems that that's like introspection and uh, the similarity to good mental exercise sweetens, uh, Ben says, the underlying poison of mindfulness. So we do have introspection. We're taught to examine ourselves and things like that in the Bible. But mindfulness differs fundamentally in that it's non-judgmental. It's detached and it's okay with any and all kinds of thoughts, whether good or bad. And here's a helpful illustration that he brought to my attention. The mindfulness book that he read likens meditation to sitting beside a road and watching cars go by where the cars are your thoughts. You let the cars go by, the good ones and the bad ones, and don't try to chase the good ones or stop the bad ones. You just uh, let them go by and, and study them and become more aware of them. And over time, the traffic on your thought highway gets less and less and becomes more and more calm. And eventually, there are times when no cars are driving by, no thoughts in your mind. And uh, Dwayne, this probably uh, corresponds to your little tagline on your emails from uh, days gone by when you said at the bottom of your emails, um, thinking is hard work. That's why so few people do it. <laughs> you remember that? <laughs> yeah, you ought to bring that back again. That was a good, uh, a good little thing at the bottom of his emails. Um, mindfulness claims there exists an underlying peace and joy that is always present for us to possess. We have to clear our thoughts out to find it. So it replaces the idea of peace and joy that comes from our relationship with God to a kind of empty-minded sort of, of thing. And its claims is that thoughts and feelings are autonomous. They just are by themselves, they, they, they are their own thing. You don't rule them or decide about them, as it were, or judge them, certainly. Uh, and so it excuses the guilt of bad thinking. What we talked about this morning, uh, we talked about the battle in the mind, which is a, actually a whole sermon that I want to write on or a series. Uh, that is very important to us as Christians. The battle is in our minds. There is a heavy battle going on there in our thoughts. And it's not okay to just, you know, just let it all go. 
Why? Because as you think in your heart, what does that mean? I mean, that is who you are, right? And it will come out. So it strives to, to this mindfulness doctrine, strives to create a perception that things are okay, whether they're good or bad or nothing at all. And so they, it's kind of this numbing uh, uh, fear of numbing the fear of death and just numbing our thoughts and all that. I guess the, the thing that really gets me about this, and I'll, I'll stop with this, is just to, to suggest that thoughts are okay, they're all equal. That's obviously false. Everybody knows that. Well, maybe not everybody, but they should know that. There are hateful thoughts. Um, some people gathered outside the hospital where those two police officers are from Compton uh, in California, and they were shouting things like, uh, we hope that they die. Those words arise from evil thoughts. Think, think if the opposite was done, that uh, people said that of victims of police brutality. We hope that they die. I mean, that, that would be shocking. Well, just as shocking is this. That kind of, of thought process is evil. And those thoughts need to be brought under subjection to Christ. They need to be repented of. Yes, there are some things you should not think about. You should tell yourself, I'm not going to think about that thing. Uh, what was it we were listening to Dr. MacArthur preach on something about this? And he said, uh, you, you need to talk to yourself. You need to have a talk with yourself was kind of the idea. And tell yourself, self, that's not the right thing to think about. Cut it out. Okay? You, don't let, you don't let your evil heart talk to you. You talk to it and you tell it what it's going to do. You're the boss of it. Okay, to put it very simply, in your spirit, redeemed as you are as a believer in Christ, you have to say, look, stop. Enough. Be disciplined about those thoughts. And there's the thing. Being disciplined in your life includes being disciplined in your brain. And if you're not disciplined there, guess what your life is going to look like? A mess. That's right. And so, uh, mindfulness out. Okay? The Christian doctrine of thinking in. And uh, the recognition that there are many of our thoughts that are sinful and they need to be put away. They need to be repented of. We need to confess them. We need to ask God to cleanse our, our thoughts and fill our minds with positive things. Why do you think God wants us to be in the book so much? And in church? and with other believers. Because when you're with those things, it tends to push out the bad thoughts. It's not a, yeah, it's not, it's not a panacea. It's not like you're going to, you know, as soon as you walk through the doors of the church that everything's going to be perfect in your mind and you're never going to have a bad thought. That's not the experience of any pastor or any church member. Um, but you're going to tend to be moving in that direction. And if you have a struggle with bad thoughts, you can deal with those not by just letting them go, but by attacking them with sound teaching and with filling your mind with good doctrine. So, very important for us to think about thinking. Okay? All right, those are a couple of things that I had for us this evening. You have a question. Okay, so the question that Becky is asking has to do with 2 Kings 20, particularly verse number 13. After Hezekiah was told that he was going to die, he prayed, God extended his life. Uh, and then um, Baradak Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that Hezekiah had been sick. So it's kind of like a, you know, I don't know, how do you say, an international peace offering, if you will, just a. A, a token of goodwill, supposedly. 
to Hezekiah. And Hezekiah was attentive to them, the messengers here, and showed them all the house of his treasures, the silver and gold, the spices and precious ointment and all his armory, all that was found among his treasures. There was nothing in his house or all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. And the question is, what, what possessed him to do that? Why did he do that? Anybody have any thoughts on that? Okay. We have on the table the word pride. P-R-I-D-E. With the I in the middle. As it always is when you spell that pesky word. Yeah. Uh, so evidently he had some level of pride in what God had uh, given to them. And he showed that. And what he should have done uh, obviously is to thank the uh, envoys for their gift. Wonderful. You know, make the speech, do the photo op, do the handshakes, all that stuff, and then, and then send them on their way. Be grateful, but not to be um, proud about that. So, it, let's see if we can trace down through the text. The, Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and what, asked, what did they say? Where did they come from? And so, he said they came from Babylon. And what have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, they've seen all that is in my house. There's nothing among my treasures that I have not shown to them. Now, whose treasures are these? God's treasures, not His, not mine. These are all things that God had given to Him. Now, behold, the days, Isaiah said, verse 17, are coming when all that is in your house, everything you've accumulated, your fathers unto this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And they will will take away some of your sons and and all of that. and so Hezekiah comforted himself with, uh, well, at least uh, that's not going to happen in my days. I don't have to worry about that. I'll die and, and go on my way. Leave the problem to somebody else, right? Yeah, great, wonderful. So, yes, sir? A, a what? A question and a half. We don't take questions and half questions. We take whole questions. <laughs> okay. Oh. Right, so the question is, why was it okay for Solomon to do that? I wonder if you might look in the text and if Solomon acknowledged that this was what God had done for them. Perhaps. I'll have to hold off on the answer to that question until I look at that a little more carefully. But your half question is, Oh, tagging on to, okay, so that was it. An additional question to that. Okay. Old Testament sacrifices. Uh, let me see if I can repeat back what you said so far. So the question that arose for uh, Jansen in a Bible study was uh, about the Old Testament sacrifices. And uh, Jansen was explaining that, uh, that those did not represent a second way of salvation. We're clear about that, are we not? Uh, you weren't saved by sacrifice or obedience to the law in uh, the, the Old Testament system or under the Mosaic Law. Nobody ever could have kept the law in such a way that would be satisfactory to God, perfectly satisfactory to God. So the you know, to say that somebody could be saved by keeping the law is merely a hypothetical situation which never could be done. But um, so the question then is, if I've grasped so far what you've said, um, why is Christ called a substitute sacrifice for us? Okay, so why do we correlate 
sacrificial language with Christ's death if there was no saving efficacy in the Old Testament sacrifices? I think the answer is given to us in the book of Hebrews to that question, that the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. And so, because they had a fundamental inability to do so, because of the nature of the sacrifice was an animal sacrifice, but the nature of Christ's sacrifice is entirely different, an infinite uh, sacrifice of the perfect Son of God who was like us. I mean, an animal is fundamentally dislike us. It's a its life was a payment for sin, temporary in nature, unable to completely wash away our sins, but his perfect sacrifice was that which took upon you know him all of our sins. And so the nature of the sacrifice is still a sacrifice. It's still blood, uh, death. Uh, you know, lamb and goats and bulls and all that, and Christ as the perfect Lamb of God. That is a is a that system is a picture, a type. Some call it. I don't really prefer that language, but a shadow of the thing to come. And so, there's also a different, a totally different nature to the sacrifice language, in that God gave Himself, His own Son, as a sacrifice whereas these sacrifices were given by people who were un uh, or imperfect uh, people. And so not only do you have the so you have the commonality of sacrificial language, but you have the nature of the sacrifice as an animal versus the nature of the sacrifice, the perfect Son of God, and you have a, a different nature of the giver of the sacrifice in the Old Testament versus the giver of the sacrifice in the New Testament. And so it is a type or shadow fulfilled, if you will, in this uh, uh, work of Christ. I think we might say, too, that the Old Testament system is instructive, formative in the thinking of the Jewish person's mind that they understand that there is no remission of sin without the shedding of blood, but that there's something lacking in that. They knew because they had to go back over and over every year, Hebrews teaches us, to uh, have these sacrifices in the Day of Atonement every year and all of that. Whereas today, uh, well, since Christ, we have a once-for-all sacrifice that corresponds to that sort of idea that was taught in the Old Testament, but is a much higher elevated type of sacrifice. Um, I think there's much, there's more to be said in answer to that. I'd have to maybe your your questioners might give some feedback, and I'd know where their where their thinking is on that particular question, um, because you know to talk about Christ as a sacrifice that's 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 loaded with with all kinds of good all kinds of good theology. I mean, I'd go back to Isaiah 53, just like we did this morning, and talk about about that. In fact, um, just illustratively, uh, a fellow uh, who was very antagonistic to the gospel on a number of occasions um, spoke to me on campus, and uh, I, I believe his name was Daniel, a Jewish fellow. I love to get a hold of him again. Daniel, if you're out there somewhere and you find this video, you get in touch with me. You know how to find me. Um, he was asking about the sacrifice uh, of, of Isaiah 53 and uh, about, of Christ. He said, look, God never, never uh, sanctioned human sacrifice. So what is this? You Christians teach this human sacrifice thing. Jesus sacrificing himself. Well, I said, first of all, look at uh, Isaac, you know, an almost human sacrifice. But beyond that, look at Isaiah 53, which says that God made His soul an offering for sin. There's the servant made into an offering for sin, explicitly taught in the Hebrew Scriptures. Um, and so I think it's verse number 10 in Isaiah 53. And so, uh, he's, he's called a sacrifice by the prophets and other places too, and certainly presented that way in uh, the New Testament. 
Uh, let's see. Yeah, it is Isaiah 53.10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin. So, you know, you can't criticize Christian doctrine of, of the sacrificial or substitutionary atonement based on the fact that it's unique. <laughs> it is unique. There's no other way that God had planned for our salvation. And it ought to tell you something about the heinousness of sin, that that kind of sacrifice was required in order to accomplish our salvation. Okay, Jackson has a question. Okay. What 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 passage is that? You're you're talking about uh, Peleg. First Chronicles one nineteen. Somebody uh, somebody go there and and find that one for us, please. Yeah, the time. Uh, let's see here. Um, I'm looking back for a needle in a haystack here now. Yeah, I was looking for him in Genesis 10 or 11. Uh, Peleg. Yeah, to Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg. This is Genesis 10.25. For in his days the earth was divided and his brother's name was Joktan. Okay, so uh, Jackson's question is that uh, he learned in school that the uh, the, the topography of the earth may have been a, a single large continent. And then during the flood, it was broken up and uh, finally landed uh, in its current or close to its current configuration. And then he's asking, how does that relate to the statement about Eber, whose sons, one was named Peleg, uh, and his, his name has something to do with the idea of division. The earth was uh, divided. Let's see if we can see here. <clears throat> yeah, that's division. Division. Yes, sir. If I could add something. Yeah. Correct. So uh, John has added that uh, one... Um, more dynamic translation perhaps, or uh, what's the word, uh, amplified translation, suggests that the division does not have to do with the physical topography of the earth, and that was going to be my suggestion. Dependent, we have to, I have to dig in exactly to the time uh, of this uh, division. But you'll notice that just after this, in Genesis 11, you have uh, the Tower of Babel. So, Jackson, the word division could mean division in pieces like the continents moving apart. It also could mean division into national groups, people groups spreading out over the face of the earth. So, um, you have entered into a very interesting question because you read the word division one way and didn't realize that it could be used a different way. So, now you have to wrestle with which way is the correct way? Um, now, the Bible doesn't tell us specifically that, you know, Pangea, that's the name of the supercontinent, right, that they call, at least how secularists might call it. Uh, they don't, it doesn't tell us that specifically. However, we can easily imagine that a large uh, or different configuration of land masses prevailed because the flood was. I mean, I don't know that we really get the flood when we just say the flood. Like we think, you know, oh, there was all this water and then it dried up. It was a worldwide, catastrophic, cataclysmic, devastating. I mean, if you think that the, uh, what was that 
earthquake and tsunami that happened in 2004, was it, over in Indonesia? And over a quarter of a million people died, right? If you think that was big, that was not big. That was like, there were zillions of those things going on during the flood. And, and millions of souls perished during that. And so, there was just quite an upheaval of the whole, all of the face of the earth. The earth is today scarred from the flood and uh, probably very, very different looking to Noah and his family when they walked out of the ark. Like, whoa, <laughs> this is a little different than what we saw before. So it was a devastating thing. And I can easily imagine how large sections of the mantle would be broken up by forces of fast rushing water up from underneath the earth. The other thing's interesting physically about that is if you know how much water is underneath you, you might be afraid. <laughs> There's a lot of water down there, you know. Uh, that's why we can dig wells and get water in many, many places on the earth. So it's uh, it's quite an interesting uh, quite an interesting study. But I'm what, let me get back to what your question is. I'm, the Bible doesn't tell us specifically that that division of land masses occurred, but we can easily imagine it having occurred. We do know that God divided up the peoples by languages in chapter 11. And do you know why He did that? They were, they were disobedient to God's command to do what? Distribute themselves and spread out and, and fill up all the earth. They said, we want to build a, a tower, make ourselves a name, and we want to be famous and all of that. And Genesis 11 says that God went down and confused their languages that they may not un understand one another's speech. And so at verse 8 says of Genesis 11, the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth and they ceased building the city. And they called that place Babel. So that's the scattering. God commanded them to do that, but as... Always, when God wants people to do something, they always do what? The opposite, right? They've got to sin somehow. So if He tells them to scatter, they'll they'll stay together. If He tells them to stay together, they'll div they'll divide. You know. So um, that interesting question, Jackson, about division. Yes. Yes. Vast oceans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Rowboats. Yes, so there's been continuous change over thousands of years and the uh, inquiry that Emily was offering was, um, you know, the land masses perhaps were closer together or the topography was different so that a scattering could occur after the flood and then uh, the land masses just move farther and farther apart, which they are still doing today, right? They're moving. Not that you can't say they're moving farther and farther apart. They, you know, they move whichever direction they move according to study of plate tectonics, but they are in motion ever slowly. But there, there could be large um, aftershocks of the flood and of those events. I think you see those around the Ring of Fire in the Pacific. You get huge earthquakes in Chile, huge earthquakes that happen in uh, Alaska a couple of times, and that large one in, in uh, Indonesia and so on. I think those are just kind of aftershocks of all that upheaval that occurred and all the movement that is happening. And so it's certainly plausible that there was a you know, land bridge between Russia and Alaska or whatever and, and the explanation of all that. You know, that's fine. Uh, that doesn't do any damage to our doctrine of creation or the flood or any of that. Now, when they start saying, you know, this happened 65,000 years ago and 
you know, the dinosaurs were 65 million years ago and all that, then, you know, we, we part company there for sure. But it's certainly the case that some of those features that they notice could be, you know, indeed how it has come about, perhaps on a different time scale than they than the secularist would suggest because there's no room in their thinking for supernatural things, right? Yeah. All right. That is a, another question. And you have something? So Anne's question has to do with uh, a portion in Zechariah 6.1 in which uh, somebody makes the uh, outlandish interpretation that uh, this is uh, a prediction of uh, the disaster that uh, happened on 9-11 in our country 19 years ago. Uh, It is outlandish. That is a very bad interpretation of the text which talks about these chariots and mountains uh, of bronze. that style of interpretation, and as you might know, is uh, completely divorced from proper hermeneutics, proper way of interpreting Scripture. It's uh, people just looking at the news and trying to find something that seems to fit. And so what they're doing is not exegesis of the text. They're doing what's called eisegesis, that is reading into the text what they want to see there. And that's an entirely invalid approach. No, the Bible does not predict 9-11 specifically. The Bible, however, does, remember in Matthew 24, speak about the kind of early signs of, of, of coming disaster and wars and rumors of wars and all of that. Yeah, sure, that's all included. But, uh, you know, airplanes flying into buildings on 9-11, that's a preposterous uh, idea to find in Zechariah. It just is not there, and we shouldn't be hunting around for things like that in Scripture. Yes, I've done a series on Zechariah. I have to look back and resurrect that series to uh, get the context properly for that. Yes, another question. Very common. Okay. Uh, how can I summarize that question? So a lot of Uh, People using Old Testament verses, claiming the promises today for themselves. A common one that uh, Christy mentioned was, I know the thoughts I have for you, 
uh, you know, wonderful plans, uh, all that good stuff, and it sounds nice, but it's written to the nation of Israel, promised by God for them in that context, in that prophetic context, um, or, or other passages. Now, so the question that De Christi asks is, how do we tell which ones of those words or promises in the Old Testament can we claim for ourselves? Or is it easy to tell? And um, I would say it's not easy, really, ever to tell. You have to really stop and think, okay, what's the context of this? From whom or who spoke it? To whom was it written or spoken? And then ask yourself, is that context exactly the same context as we have today? Most often the answer is going to be no because we're not under the law of Moses. We don't have the specific promises that if you obey, I will bless you. If you disobey, I will curse you. Uh, We don't have that kind of prosperity promise that they had. In fact, the Lord promised us the opposite of that. You will have tribulation in this world, uh, but don't be troubled. Uh, He says, I have overcome the world. So, what you have to do is you have to look at the text, study what it says in its context, Leave it there and then think separately as a second step about how does that, is there a bridge from that cultural, societal, law, you know, Jewish context to us today? And those bridges are notoriously difficult to find. They're, they're kind of easy to create incorrect bridges from there by just simply saying, you know, the easiest bridge is to say, pull the verse out of context, plop it down on a card and say, voila, there it is. Without regard for the fact that promises are given to Israel that don't apply to the church at all, or that have expired because God has judged Israel, or, um, what was I going to say, one other, or, or, or that are completely divorced from the other side, that is, you never see cards that have the curses to Israel on them, <laughs> you know, because people want to have, they want to have the promises, but they want to leave behind the curses, and they don't put those two together in their in their in the right way or at all, so they totally misunderstand the context of those. So the the the, the right way to build a bridge like that, and this is something that we work on, and uh, not only well just in pastoral ministry in general. And uh, Jansen, he's studying this in hermeneutics a little bit, and uh, he will in preaching, uh, to try to figure out a little bit more in a scientific, if you could say, a scientific, legitimate way how to do this. But basically, you take the meaning of the text, you work very hard on that, and what I encourage people to do is don't move out of that context until you understand exactly what God is saying. And one practical way to do that is, okay, if it's in Jeremiah... Stay there. Don't turn the page until you've figured out what it means. Or you know, correlate it with your previous truths and what they understood it to be. Then, from that, extract the principles that are timeless principles. Um, God is sovereign. God is omnipotent. God is with His people. Uh, you know, salvation is granted by God through faith. Uh, you know, the doctrine of man, the sin of man, the relationship of man and God. Pull those principles that you see that you can demonstrate from other books of the Scripture that are generally true, timeless principles and then say, how does that apply to our situation? Uh, About the one that, you know, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and all of that. Well, my people who, who is... Who is my people? The nation of Israel in that case. So that you can't just rip that out and say, okay, replace Israel with the United States. You have to think, what is the principle that God is talking about there? If a people humble themselves, if there is repentance, then God will respond favorably to them. But that has to be colored by the the bottom line truths in our age that, uh, you know, Evil men are going to wax worse and worse. And there's no um, you know, 
promise uh, to any nation today that they're going to prosper if that's the case fully. You know what I'm saying? Generally, we know if a nation follows the ways of God, they will be prospered because that's how the world works properly. But if they, and if they don't, then they won't. But that's, that's very general, very almost proverbial. It's not, it's not uh, absolute. So figure out what the text says. Draw principles out of it. And that's hard. That's, you know, you, sometimes you mess that up or you can see things there that aren't there. Ask for some help. Look at an application commentary of the Bible or something. And then um, you know, take that principle and say, how does that apply today? How does that apply today? This job is made easier by uh, the, the location that you read in your Bible. If you're reading New Testament and New Testament epistles specifically, which are written to the church, it's a very small gap to move from the meaning of the text to our situation today. We're not Thessalonica, I understand. And we didn't receive a, a, a fake letter from a fake apostle like, like the Thessalonians did that troubled them. But we're pretty close. And so the application can almost just be transferred over with a very short hop from their context to ours. But even sometimes that's difficult. What about 1 Corinthians 11 and head coverings or other portions of Scripture that have some cultural distance that we don't understand quite. So you have to, you have to study that text, bridge that distance, and then use the, the principles that are forming that bridge to, to be able to apply it. So, uh, yeah, those, those cards and some are just, you know, platitudes and they can be used well, like Satan used the Bible. He used the Bible, didn't he, in the temptation of Christ. He used it incorrectly. He used it in a way that was deceiving and displeasing to God. So, God may not have you know, a wonderful plan for somebody's life. We don't know. We can't promise them that that's the case uh, based on, on the, our understanding of Scripture. Okay? Um, so it's not easy to tell. It takes work. And I'm sure that Hallmark people haven't done all that work to make a proper extrapolation from the ancient context to the current context. And, uh, you know, I appreciate they want to have nice thoughts and things like that. But, uh, you know, like if you're, if, you're leaving the, if you're leaving the curses behind and just taking the promises, completely invalid, you know. Uh, they never they never tell you that you need to repent and believe in the gospel in order to have any kind of blessing or hope to have any kind of blessing from God uh, eternally or even presently. So, okay, did I have somebody else, John? Can I, follow on that? I I think you can. <laughs> Yes. Okay, so John's question has to do with Hosea 11.1 1 and Matthew 2.15. Matthew chapter 2. <clears throat> uh, verse uh, 15. It says that uh, Jesus, uh, baby Jesus was there in Egypt until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. And so the, the question is, how is it that Matthew uses Hosea that way when Hosea is talking clearly about the nation of Israel being called out of Egypt? And the answer to the question is that the word fulfilled in the New Testament is used in three or four different ways. The New Testament authors, well, let me back up. When we hear the word fulfilled, we think an event is predicted the event came to pass. The New Testament authors and the Jewish mindset from which they came did not think of fulfillment 
as only that kind of a thing. Fulfillment could be that, fulfillment, you know, an event predicted and then came to pass. Or it could be an event from the Old Testament or a person or uh, a place reminds them or is parallel to some event, person, or place in the New Testament. And they're making a kind of connection by what I call analogy. Many interpreters use that that phrase. Others would use the word type. They would say Israel was a type, a pattern of Christ, the anti-type or the fulfillment type. And so... Matthew's looking at the situation and saying, look, Israel went down to Egypt. Israel came out of Egypt. Jesus went down to Egypt. He came out of Egypt. That's a parallel or analogical situation. And so he's, he's saying not that Hosea was a prediction of Christ going down to Egypt and then coming, well, coming out, particularly out of Egypt, I called my son, but he's saying it's a fulfillment in the sense that this is like that. This is like that. And we see a number of other parallels like that in the New Testament that, you know, well, you see the parallel of Christ to Adam. You see the, the, the analogy of Christ with uh, Israel. Uh, and, and, of course, the, the analogy is heightened or the type, as some call it, is heightened because Adam failed, Christ didn't fail. You know, Adam was tempted, he failed. Christ was tempted, he passed. Israel went down to Egypt, came out. Christ went down to Egypt, came out. Uh, There's that parallel. Uh, Israel was uh, tested in the wilderness, they failed. Christ was tested, he passed. You know, in his wilderness, uh, 40, 40 days, wasn't it? Not 40 years or nearly 40 full years. So, The key is you have to look at the word fulfilled and ask yourself just exactly how does the New Testament author conceive of this fulfillment. And there are, uh, there's a paper I'm thinking of, I can't think of the author, a very good paper on this subject I'll have to get to you that speaks about the different kinds of fulfillment in the New Testament. And like I say, there's three or four different variations on this theme. So, uh, what I would caution us is forcing our definition of fulfilled on this text and thus making the meaning of Hosea change from what it was originally intended to be. Are you with me on that? The, Hosea did not mean that a baby is going to go down to Egypt and come out. He meant that a nation went down to Egypt, the nation of Israel, and it came out. And that meaning is stable and doesn't change, but the New Testament author says, ah, I see a parallel. That's the sense of fulfillment in this case. So don't force our version of fulfillment on the text and say, aha, that changes the meaning or shows that there's a hidden meaning in Hosea. There is no hidden meaning in Hosea. Nobody who read Hosea would have understood that. And you know, even through what I might call the... Uh, Miracle of inspiration. You cannot get meanings into texts that did not have those meanings originally. The meaning is always stable. doesn't change. Okay? So, understanding multiple types of fulfillment saves you from making a colossal error in, your, in the way that you interpret Scripture. Because what will happen then is you say, okay, I see that connection, that connection in the Bible. Now, you're going to start adding a whole bunch of more connections. This has happened. Uh, over the years of Christian theology. And people find all kinds of these connections and say, look, types and anti-types and analogies and everything else. And the, the meaning of the New Testament or the Old Testament text is changed by the New Testament text. Uh, we, we, I can't hold to that view at all. In fact, I ask you this question. I'll f- investigate this with you further sometime. What's so special about uh, the change from the Old Testament to the New Testament? Why is it all of a sudden that now the New Testament gets priority and can change, in some people's minds, change the meaning of the Old Testament under that kind of thought process that I've just gone over? Why is that? I mean, is it, is it, is it this page in your Bible that does it? It's like magic? That's not an inspired page. Okay? 
There was silence for 400 years. And then there was a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the ways of the Lord in fulfillment of Malachi and Isaiah and other prophets. To me, this is a continuous book from Genesis to Revelation. You can't give priority to the New Testament just because you know you have this division in your Bible. Uh, John the Baptist, in fact, was a prophet. Did you know that? He was the greatest of the prophets, Jesus said. He was another Isaiah, another Jeremiah, John the Baptist, in the line of the Old Testament prophets. And he gave way to Jesus. He said, I must decrease and Jesus must increase. And that's when the transition occurred to this the new realm or regime, if you will. But even there, there's so much continuity between the two. I just don't see how you can say this changes the meaning of this. Why? Because it's newer? So, we'll investigate that further sometime. I have in my mind to write on that subject some. Uh, In other words, two testaments, question mark. One Bible. That's my thought. All right, we're past time, but go ahead. Yes, well, thank you for that. That is a uh, uh, that passage, Hosea 11:1 1 and Matthew 2:15, is what Dr. Compton would call a uh, important interpretive crux or crossroad, and he had us write on that. And uh, you can't hardly forget it uh, after after your seminary classes. It comes up all the time, you know. It's in papers and and everything, and and sometimes it's discouraging to me. People talk about the verse and they say, look. Uh, Matthew redefines Hosea. Like, whoa, I mean, you just blew past a whole, you know, PhD theology thesis right there in one sense and didn't even consider the possibilities. That's not the case. The meaning didn't change. I mean, if it does, we're in trouble. Because if meaning can change of the Old Testament, what says the meaning of the New Testament is stable? I want it to be stable. You know, I don't want it to change. I like God's promises just the way they are. They don't need to change. So, amen. All right, is there any other burning question you've got to get out? Otherwise, we're going to... You had one, Drew. You said an easy one. I'll take an easy one. So, when we do the Lord's Table... Okay, Lord's Table... Yeah, so the, the question is about the Lord's table. Why do we believe that it is a gathered ordinance and not a separate ordinance? In other words, why didn't I come in, in um, the beginning of April and have, uh, you know, I'm here, live stream, empty auditorium, except for my family and Jansen and Kaylee probably at that time, and say, okay, you know, go to your refrigerator. Well, I should have, I would have had an announcement beforehand, right? Go buy yourself some Welch's grape juice and, Get your matzah bread or whatever. and, and uh, Okay, now go to the refrigerator and get your communion elements and we'll take the communion uh, live stream on YouTube. That just strikes me as strange. But why does it strike me as strange? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says on several occasions of the Lord's Supper that it has to do with coming together. Verse 17 Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. The Lord's table is a fellowship. It's a communion. Hmm, That's why we call it communion. Communion is fellowship, koinonia, sharing. You don't share by yourself. Um, And so, uh, he says... uh, Verse 20, therefore, when you come together in one place, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. So he's assuming here that this is a gathered ordinance of the church. And he uses the uh, institution, the words of its institution in 23 through 20, uh, 24, 25, uh, recording the Last Supper and, and uh, rehearsing it again. And of course, the disciples were there gathered around 
the, uh, the Last Supper, you know, table, if you will, and participating. And so you have m- numerous of these references. Look at verse 33. Therefore, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. So what is that? Four or five times we see the emphasis on coming together. So we have held that the Lord's table is a gathered ordinance or an ordinance in which the church gathers. Just like baptism, I would not accept under extreme circumstances of persecution, perhaps, have a baptism which is private. Now, someplace, I understand, they've had to do that and, and uh, you know, they'll say, well, look at Philip and the Ethiopian. They went down and there was, well, there was certainly a, a attendance to this great official of the Ethiopian government who were observing. So it was public in that sense, but it was a very small uh, service and there was not a gathered church there. But that's, that's like abnormal. The, the normal way is to have the church present, gathered for the ordinance of baptism and also gathered for the ordinance of um, the Lord's table. Now, that has led me to not offer communion in private homes even to those who are shut in. There are two kind of ways that I think about that. Number one, when somebody is unable to attend the functions of the local church, I mean, that's the definition of being shut in, that is unfortunate, but it's part of life. I mean, everybody's going to die and they're going to come to a point where they probably can't come to church. Their time of communion and sharing with the church is done. Um, but also, there's nothing stopping us in our small church from going to a home and sharing the Lord's table with them. Not just me going and taking my little communion kit, which by the way I don't have, but you know, going, taking that privately and having communion with two or three people. And I certainly wouldn't advocate you know, the deacons or elders of the church having communion every Sunday before the service privately in my in my office. That's not what the ordinance is about. It's when you come together. It's the whole church is to participate in this. And so as a result of that, that's why years ago I changed our program so that uh, about every quarter we'd have the communion in the morning so that people who can't come again in the evening could at least partake of it once per quarter um, because of that conviction. So... That's why we hold that it's a gathered together ordinance based on that text of Scripture. Okay? Good. All right. Let's pray. Father, thank You for tonight and for the way in which You have guided us today and allowed us the wonderful times today, this morning, speaking about the fact that we have no license to sin and speaking about baptism and having the baptism service and seeing the guests that were with us. We pray especially for those guests, for Leo's grandparents and for David and Michael's mom and dad and for um, Michael's wife, uh, Allison, and for their daughter, uh, Addie, as well. And we just ask that you will bless those ones who are in our midst today. Thank you for your loving kindness and your grace. Thank you for each one of these dear ones who are such an important part of our church family. They are our members, our, uh, the parts of our body essential to us, Lord. And and that's why we want to gather to worship and to worship in the Lord's table and and baptism, observe baptisms and things like that. Lord, we pray that You'll maybe bring some more here very soon who would say, hey, I saw that baptism and I need to be baptized as well. Or bring some others along to share in corporate prayer or to, uh, to be more involved in the Lord's table service or to be more involved in service generally in the church. And we thank You. Bless these ones. May they go in peace. May Your face smile upon them. In Jesus' name, Amen.